The Insurance and Injury Law Show, the number 1-88-990-9646, or it is help at theinsurancelawyer.ca. Anytime you want to get hold of James or Savan at the firm, you can do that. Savan's off for a couple weeks doing some work. James, you are my are, are at the helm, my friend. So we're going to start with a bunch of stuff today. We'll get some emails and some questions, lots of good information here. We'll give you uh, details on the injury calculator as well. And as we always start every show, a uh, look back or things that are currently on your desk you're dealing with the week that was. How was it, pal? Great week. Lots going on. Um, So I'll start with a lady that emailed us uh, earlier uh, in the week. So she said, okay, I'm going to skip the initial part here, but she says, short story, I've been on disability insurance through my employer and is just under a year. I left work due to a major depression and anxiety disorder on May 23rd of 2017, so last year. I've been assigned therapy through my insurance company, and we won't say who that is and has have seen little to no improvement. My therapist, who is assigned through my insurance, is pretty much making me go back to work, considering the fact that I am still not in a good mental state. She is focusing on my return to work date and even told me that she needs a return back to work date. We went for May 23rd of this year, which marks one year. I stated that I'm hoping to go back to work, but I'm just not feeling good yet. At this point, I feel that I'm in a rush to get better, and her sessions are not that useful. And then she goes on, and this is a little wrinkle here. She says, I'm also going through foot surgery, which requires me to be off my foot for four weeks. She told me work insurance already wants me back to work, and she has to schedule the therapy sessions through the phone. I will be on painkillers and antibiotics and asked her to have the sessions after four weeks, in other words, after her foot, foot yeah. uh, recovery is over. But she denied my request and tells me they want me at work already. At this point, I feel lost, and I'm feeling I have no other option but to go back to work considering how I'm still feeling. I wanted to see if I have a case here, and if so, what are my options? I really appreciate your help in advance. So a lot of things to deal with here. Um, the first thing that strikes me is, uh, so this lady has not yet been cut off, but she is obviously being put in a very difficult position. And it seems as though that's really coming from her insurance company, even though it's a message being relayed through a, right. a, a therapist who happens to be hired by the insurance company. Yeah. So this is a, an issue that comes up um, quite frequently uh, when we have clients that are provided with uh, treatment providers, therapists, or what have you, through the insurance company. Now, sometimes they're they're great. Sometimes they're doing their job the way that they should. They're providing good treatment, um, and our clients are happy with the treatment that they're getting. But other times, it doesn't work out so well. And that's why you really have to make sure that you're comfortable with the treatment that you're getting. And so in a situation like this where it sounds like, number one, the treatment isn't particularly helpful, and number two, it sounds like, the therapist is really just doing the bidding of the insurance company and isn't looking out for your best interest, that's when you have to make a decision at some point. So the first thing I would recommend is to make sure, if you're not already doing it, that you are continuing to see your family doctor in addition to this therapist. It's important that you have somebody else that is providing you with some form of treatment, even if it's not specifically for the issue that you're dealing with, someone who is aware overall of what your condition is, um, that can monitor your health on an ongoing basis, and who isn't in an insurance company's pocket, or who you know, you're not concerned that they are. So that's the first thing. You want to make sure that you have somebody who is independent, who is documenting from a medical perspective what's going on. 
Number two, the other thing you really should do, and this is an ongoing theme and something that I recommend to most of my clients, is you want to make sure that you're documenting everything that's happening very, very well. So even if we're not talking about the adjuster, even if we're talking about your therapist, if your therapist is telling you things that don't seem right to you, you want to make sure that you're documenting that. Now, they may be telling you that by phone, uh, and so you might not have a direct email from them. But again, this is something I recommend all the time. If you're being told something that impacts your claim and you don't think it's right, even if you do and you're not sure, send an email back confirming everything that they've said. This has uh, you know, many benefits to you. Number one, it really pushes them to take a look at what they're saying. If they don't respond back, they're essentially confirming your version of what they've said. And that's really helpful for you. But if in doing that, they take a look and see it in writing and say, well, maybe that doesn't look so good, and they take a step back, well, they may you know, change their position a little bit to something that's a little bit more reasonable. So this issue with um, this lady's foot surgery and her treatment is a perfect example. It may well be the case that her therapist is saying, oh, no, we have to continue with the treatments over the phone, even while you're, you know, on these heavy narcotics that are going to prevent you from being able to, you know, actually get anything out of the treatment. You still have to go ahead with it. That's ridiculous. And if that's actually what the therapist is saying, you want to put that in writing, because once that's put in an email in writing and the therapist sees it, they're going to know how ridiculous that that looks. Um, They're going to know that that's going to make them look awful if this ever comes out later. And so if they did say that, then they're going to want to step back from that and say, oh, no, you know, perhaps they'll say, oh, I didn't quite say that. And, you know, if you you know aren't able to go ahead, that's fine. We'll wait. Or perhaps they won't say anything. If they don't say anything and they insist you go ahead, well, at least you have a record of it. At least you have a record of it. So if and when you have to challenge a denial, they're in a very bad position. By they, I mean the insurance company and the therapist as well. So wanna, yeah, go ahead, no, Go ahead. No, sorry, I was just going to say when I wanted to, just we got about a minute left in this segment. I wanted you, you mentioned something back there, and that is, and this is a, a pretty common theme that the insurance company says, you know, go to our guy or our girl, our therapist. Should that be a red flag? And two, can you say no? Because most people will be intimidated and say, okay, well, they told me I got to go to clinic XYZ. I guess I have to go. Well, it really depends on the circumstances. You know, certainly if you have a therapist that you are using and you're comfortable with, um, I, I wouldn't let the insurance company come in between that relationship. Mm-hmm. It may well be that you wind up having to go um, for multiple treatment providers, but I, you know, if you're getting effective therapy, that's something that you need to continue with. Your health has to come first. Right. So, you know, if your doctor is telling you one thing, that takes uh, precedent over anything the insurance company is saying. And if you have an effective treatment provider, as long as they're a qualified medical professional, the insurance company can't tell you that you can't go to see them. They may insist on sending you to someone of their own, but that doesn't mean you have to stop seeing who you have been seeing. Now, in certain situations, you know, if you know, in a treatment provider is acting the way this one appears to be, that is certainly a red flag. It's not always going to be the case, and I'm not mm-hmm. suggesting that you know, anytime an insurance company says, "Oh, here's a treatment provider," that means automatically it's bad news. But you know, you want to have your guard up, and you want to make sure that the treatment provider is looking out for you. They're providing you with treatment that you're going to be able to recover because of it. So you know, it's not always going to be an issue, but mm-hmm. yes, you want to be careful as well. You have questions, by the way, anytime the show is not on, one 9646 is the number. It is help at the insurance lawyer.ca. Lots more coming up. Your emails, we'll get to one as soon as we
we come back after a short break. This is the Insurance and Injury Law Show, Global News Radio, 640 Toronto. 1-888-990-9646 is the number. Email is help at theinsurancelawyer.ca. We'll talk about it just uh, in a little bit, and that is the injury calculator. You'll want to find out what the pain and suffering component of your claim should be, injurycalculator.ca as well. Email, throw this one to you, uh, James. Let you answer it. Greg writes in, says, my son... As uh, Parkinson's, but his long-term disability insurer wants to cut him off long-term disability. He's only 43, and he definitely can't work. His specialist wrote the insurer that their decision is insane, but they insist that they don't have to pay. Is there any point in challenging their decision? Absolutely. So, uh, you know, here's a situation where you have support from a treating physician um, that... Uh, Greg's son isn't able to return to work, and that's perfectly understandable. Um, you know, Parkinson's is a disease that's well known. It's a condition that um, can affect many aspects of one's ability to return to work, and it's a, pro- a progressive disease as well. Yep. So, uh, you know, it's not something that, um, you know, should uh, be unknown to the insurer or to the physicians. Um, and it, it's certainly something that can be challenged. And when you do challenge them, it takes it out of the insurance company's hands. So what they're banking on is that you're going to stay within the process, either by doing nothing or by you know doing the appeal process that they always put in the denial letters. And that just gives the insurance company continued power over your son's claim. As soon as you bring a legal claim, it takes it out of their hands. It means that it's in the court process. Doesn't mean it's going to go to court, but it means that if you can't resolve it, that's what happens at the end of the day. And they know that. They know that they're no longer the ultimate decision maker, and that makes a huge difference. So absolutely, it can be challenged. It should be challenged. Um, You know, you have the support of your treating physician, whether it's Parkinson's or anything else. If your treating physician is telling you that you can't go back to work, that means you can't go back to work no matter what your insurance company is telling you. So it's really fairly straightforward in that kind of a circumstance. You know, sidestep for a little bit. You did mention there that uh, you'll get into the appeals process. Now, you've you've opened up everybody's eyes on this show before talking about that appeal process. What is the hazard with appealing and possibly appealing again and again and possibly again? Great question. So first of all, before I answer the question, um, there's very little point to the appeal process. Mm-hmm. It's you're appealing to the same people who have cut you off. They have already made their decision and you're just asking them to think about it again. Well, what do you think is going to happen? They have a vested interest in cutting you off. That's how they make money. They make money by taking in more money in premiums and paying out less in benefits. So they want to cut you off and they've already decided to do so. Um, the issue is, and the, the reason why it's you know a concern if you've uh, been cut off and you're looking at whether or not you should appeal is because you have a limited amount of time to bring a legal challenge. Now, an appeal of their decision within the insurance company system is not a legal challenge. Mm. That is not putting it in the court system. Um, You have two years from the date that they send you the initial denial letter to bring a legal challenge. If you don't do it within the two years, you're out of luck, and they know it. They know it. So they'll provide you as many appeals as you want within those two years. They'll keep allowing you to appeal over and over and over again as long as you stay within the process. But if you don't bring a legal challenge, if you don't start a legal claim within the two years, you're out of luck. So just to clarify, even if you appeal again and appeal again, the clock does not reset? Not at all. You can appeal five times, and the clock has been running since the wow. very first denial. That is really scary. That's mm-hmm. truly scary. one uh, 990 is the number. Help the Uh Sometimes people suffer both physical and there's also psychological issues that disable them from working. 
Should the person mention both issues on their application or just one? Because you know, of the two, some people are going to be resident to put, you know, which one down, probably the mental or the phys- uh, psychological, right? Should they do both? Absolutely. It's very yeah. important to document every issue that you're having that impacts your ability to work. Um, you know, and the other thing that you really need to be aware of is, it, you know, your disability can start as one thing and develop into something else. Right. So it may initially start as a physical issue that prevents you from working, and depending on how serious it is, um, it can, you know, develop just from that physical injury. You can have an emotional or psychological issue that develops from that. Um, that happens not infrequently, and when that does happen. It's important that any changes are uh, updated with the insurance company and, more importantly, with your doctors. So your treating physicians, whether it's your family doctor or if you're seeing a specialist, they need to know what's going on. They need to know what's developing. Um, sometimes you'll have you know one physical issue and it'll you know another one will develop down the road. Um, sometimes it can just be you know a an accident that happens after you've already been injured, yeah. or sometimes it can be something uh, what we call a compensatory injury. So you know a, a classic example: if you injure, let's say, your left leg. What happens? Well, you're favoring your left leg, so what do you do? You put more weight on your right leg. When you're standing around, you're leaning to the right. Right. After a few months of doing that, what happens? Your right leg says, well, I'm not built to be supporting all of your weight. Ouch. <laughs> and so your right, right. leg be, you know, develops an injury because of it. Again, that's it's compensating for the other injury, but it still is something that is coming out of it. So when you're not when you're outside of the disability context and you're looking at an injury claim where you're looking at who's caused um, the a particular injury, a compensatory injury like that would be relevant. In a disability claim, everything matters. Everything matters. So whether it's something that you had initially or that develops down the road from a completely separate cause, it still matters as long as it's preventing you from returning to work. We'll uh, get your emails and more of your questions here in just a short break. One triple eight nine nine zero ninety six forty six rather is the number. We'll also talk about the injury calculator. You can visit that right now. In the meantime, injurycalculator.ca. Find out exactly what the pain and suffering component of a claim should be. It's just a small part, but it's a it's a place to start, and it's an interesting number, and it might open your eyes. We'll get to talking about that in the next segment here. The insurance and injury law show. It's right here, Global News Radio six forty Toronto. The Insurance and Injury Law Show, one 9646 is the number. Help at the insurancelawyer.ca before we bounce over to an email. Uh, James, give me some details on the injury calculator. I've talked about it a couple of times. So the injury calculator, you can find it at injurycalculator.ca. This is an excellent tool if you've been injured and you're curious about the value of the pain and suffering component of your claim. So again, we're talking about an injury claim here, not a disability claim. When somebody has, through their own fault, caused you to be injured, whether it's a car accident, slip and fall, something else. And you might be wondering, well, how much is my pain and suffering worth if I were to bring a claim? So you go to injurycalculator.ca. It's a very simple process. It'll take you less than a minute, and it's anonymous. You're going to be asked certain questions um, just so that we can search our database and provide an accurate answer. Things like your age, what type of injury you've suffered. Um, Sometimes it'll ask for the degree of your injury to the extent that you know it. Um, and how you were injured, whether it was a car accident or something else. And it'll take that information and it will compare it to a database 
of all known cases where similar injuries have been suffered by people in similar circumstances. And the reason we do that is because that is the best way to make an estimate of the value of the pain and suffering component. There isn't a specific chart that one can look at and look up the value of a particular injury, but by looking at how the courts have awarded damages in similar cases, we can get a pretty good idea of what the value is going to be. And so you go through this process, again, less than a minute, anonymous, and it'll give you a good idea. It'll give you a range, a top and a bottom figure that you can expect is likely to be the result of the pain and suffering component of your claim. Now, this isn't the only part of your claim, of course. We're just talking about the pain and suffering. If you have an injury claim and you were working and you've missed time from work, there's going to be an award for your loss of income. Um, You're also going to be entitled to out-of-pocket expenses, medical expenses, and a number of other different uh, damages that are going to add to the total value of the claim. But those are things that you're going to be, even if you haven't gone through the process, you're going to be able to understand the value of those a lot easier. If you, you, know, you haven't worked for a year and you were making $40,000 a year, more or less that's what you're entitled to. But if you're trying to figure out what your pain and suffering is, that's a little more difficult to know unless you've done this many, many times, unless you use the injury calculator. Again, less than a minute, very easy to use. Um, and if you're interested after seeing the results, uh, you can submit the form and you can get a free consultation. So there's no risk whatsoever. Very simple. Please go ahead and use it. Free information. Injurycalculator.ca. It's, uh, it's it's pretty cool. We'll get to an email now from Laura. By the way, it is help at the insurancelawyer.ca. Laura says, I was in a very bad crash three months ago. I was cut off a highway and my car flipped several times. I broke four ribs and was diagnosed with a concussion. I haven't been able to go back to work, and I'm afraid I won't be able to go back to work for quite some time. Should I be filling some claim with the insurance for the driver that caused the accident? I'm 50, and I used to work as a marketing manager. Absolutely. So there are different potential claims that are working here. The first claim, and the one that is probably most obvious to anyone in this kind of situation, is a a legal claim against the driver of the car that cut you off. Now, in in listening to this uh, email from Laura... It doesn't sound as though uh, the there was actually contact with the cars. And oftentimes in those situations, the other car, the one that cut her off, might have just driven away. And so I don't know whether or not she got information from this other driver. But even if that's the case, you're still okay. Because in those situations, everyone has uh, a part of their insurance policy that provides that if they are injured by, by the act of an unknown driver. Their own insurance company will step into the place of that unknown driver and will provide coverage for anything that they would be on the hook for. So don't let that discourage you, discourage you from calling us and from getting information about your potential claim because there's certainly um, the ability to go ahead with that. Um, the second part of the claim that you can take a look at is accident benefits. And anytime anyone is injured as a result of a car accident, whether they were the driver or a passenger, whether they were a pedestrian or even a cyclist hit by a car, you are entitled to receive accident benefits. They're called statutory accident benefits, and they are available in any motor vehicle accident. They provide income replacement benefits up to $400 a week, and they also can provide with medical and rehabilitation benefits, and depending on the circumstances, other benefits as well too. That does not require any you to prove who was at fault. 
even if you're entirely at fault for the accident, even if it's a one-car collision and you are the only one who could be at fault, you're still entitled to those accident benefits. The number is one triple eight nine nine zero ninety six forty six. Let's get to another question. How important is it to start claims for serious injuries immediately rather than waiting, say, months or even years, which I don't know anybody would, but months or years? And what can happen if you wait too long to start a claim for compensation? It's an interesting question, and my general approach is as soon as I'm comfortable that there is a claim there, I'm going to start it. I think once you know that you have a legitimate basis to bring a claim, there is really no benefit in waiting. The longer you wait to start the process, the longer you wait to conclude it, which means that you know, your client isn't going to get paid, and typically speaking, if they've been seriously injured, they need it. They need the money as quickly yeah. as possible. So it's very important to start as soon as you can. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean you're going to start it you know, the day after you're injured in a car accident. There is information that you need to, to gather before you start a claim, but that shouldn't take years to do. There are some firms out there that I, I can't understand why. But they will wait until the you know day before the limitation period runs out, which is two years. And the day before, they're going to issue the claim. And then after you issue a claim, you've got six months before you have to serve it. And they'll wait the six months. I have no idea why they're doing it. It doesn't make any sense to me. But it you know just to me says that they're not very organized and they're doing everything last minute. Um, that's really not the way that a practice should be run. Um, you know, you should be bringing claims when you are confident that you have a claim to go ahead with, uh, especially when we're talking about a serious injury. If you wait too long, that's the other part of this question, if you wait too long, if you wait longer than two years, you run the risk of your claim being defeated by a limitation defense. So if it's been more than two years since the accident, in almost every case, the defendant is going to say, no, you've missed the limitation period, yep. sorry, you're not entitled to bring the claim. Sometimes the court will agree with them and sometimes they won't, but in every case, you're running a risk. You're running a risk and you you don't need to do that. You want to make sure that you bring a claim within two years of the date that you know you have a claim. So if it's a car accident, you want to do it two years from the date of the car accident. If it's a denial of insurance benefits, you want to do it within two years of the date of the denial. Whatever it is, after those two years are up, you're in a much worse position. We'll take a uh, short break. One triple eight nine nine zero ninety six forty six is the number, and we'll bounce over to one of your emails as well. That is help at theinsurancelawyer.ca. It's the Insurance and Injury Law Show, Global News Radio six forty Toronto. One triple eight nine nine zero ninety six forty six is that number. It is help at theinsurancelawyer.ca for an email from Jill. Get to this one for you. James says my sister was uh, cycling around home last summer and was struck by a car trying to make an illegal U turn. She was badly bruised and was taken to hospital. She's been paying for her own physio. Is there a way to claim for those expenses? For sure, for sure. This raises the issue of accident benefits, and I was just talking about this in the last segment. So, again, any time you are injured in an accident that involves a car or a motor vehicle, you're going to be entitled to accident benefits. If you have your own insurance policy, so let's use Jill's sister as an example. Now, she was riding a bike. Jill's sister is riding a bike and is hit by a car. But Jill's sister might also have her own automobile insurance. And if she does, then she would bring a claim through her own automobile insurance company. As See, most w- people would not know that. They that, would not know that. That's fascinating. But even though she wasn't in her car, she's on a 10-speed. Absolutely. You, if you have your own automobile insurance, you would bring a claim through your own automobile wow. insurance policy. It doesn't matter who's at fault here. And it sounds you know, obviously like the driver of the car is at fault, but it doesn't even matter. 
you this is a an insurance claim that you would make to your own insurance company and you would be entitled to receive up to $400 a week in income replacement benefits as well as the medical and rehabilitation benefits that Jill is talking about with her sister that she has to pay for her own physio if Jill does Jill's sister doesn't drive doesn't have any automobile insurance coverage. Not a problem. She can then bring the claim through the driver um, that hit her through that policy. And that driver is going to have to have a policy. And so it'll work exactly the same way. It will be to a different insurance company, presumably. Um, Let's say even if uh, the driver that hit Jill doesn't have insurance, which is unusual, but it does happen. Even in the case where the driver of the vehicle doesn't have adequate coverage and you don't have any automobile coverage, there is an entity called the Motor Vehicle Accident Claims Fund that's set up for exactly that scenario, and they will step in. So you will always have access to accident benefits if you are injured in any accident involving a car. Simple as that. That fund that you just spoke about, is it, or could it be equivalent to your own policy, or is there a uh, dollar limit to it? Same thing. It'll work exactly the same oh, wow. way that your own policy works. Now, again, we're t- here we're talking about accident benefits, which right. are themselves limited. Yeah. You can only get up to $400 a week in income replacement benefits. So bringing this back to Jill's sister, if she's been off work because of this, she might be losing well more than $400 a week, and to the yeah. extent that that's the case, she can bring a legal claim against the driver of the other car. And that's you know certainly always another option as well. So if an injured person needs to do things around the house, such as uh, install guardrails because he or she can't walk outside without them, I mean, can they claim out-of-pocket expenses for that, maybe things inside the shower, stuff they need to cope inside the home or out? Can they claim that? It's a really good question. To answer this, I think it's important that we go to the first principles. And when you're talking about a personal injury case, the damages, the amount of money that the person who's been injured, that they are entitled to, is based on a principle of making the plaintiff whole again. So the the law says that we have to take a look at this person that's been injured and say what can money do to make this put this person back in the same situation that they were in or would have been in had the accident not happened. So for example, pain and suffering, again, we've talked about the injury calculator. Um, this will give you an estimate of the value of the pain and suffering. The purpose of that is essentially to compensate this person for the pain and suffering that they've gone through as a result of the accident. Fairly straightforward. Loss of income, again, fairly straightforward. If you've lost income, you're entitled to receive that from the person who has caused you to lose it. But then what we're talking about here now are other expenses, things that you're going to be out of pocket for. And so the question above that we're talking, you know, we're talking about installation of guardrails or other items around the house. That's a really good illustration of the different, uh, of this principle at work. So let's assume in this scenario that we're talking about a, you know, someone who was a healthy individual before, let's say they had a job in construction and they're injured in an accident and they become a paraplegic. They need a wheelchair now to get around. So the pain and suffering, again, um, you know, we've talked about the injury calculator, Mm -hmm. injurycalculator.ca. That will give you a good idea of what that's worth. And loss of income is fairly straightforward. But for the other types of pecuniary losses, and that's what they call it. They call it pecuniary loss when it's something that you can put a specific dollar amount to. Um, So past treatment expenses um, that are not covered by uh, any other insurance company, that is something that you can recover for. 
all future treatment, even if it's something that you have insurance that ought to cover for, um, that's something that you can recover from the outfall party for. And the reason for that is simply because if you have um, you know, an insurance policy, an insurance policy that's supposed to pay you for something, you don't know whether they're going to continue to do that. As we know, insurance companies try and cut people off as, as often as they can. And so what happens in that scenario, the law says you're entitled to recover it from the person that caused you the injury. And then technically speaking, that person is entitled to be assigned the value of the insurance cover- huh. coverage down the road. Um, we don't have to get into the technicalities of it, but that's certainly available. And so, looking at the things, um, the you know, the things around the house that this person is going to need again, first principles make the plaintiff whole again. So this is a person who now can't walk. So we've already compensated this person for their pain and suffering. We've talked about that, and we've compensated them for their loss of income. That's fairly straightforward. But then there are other ways that they're still not whole, even when you consider that. So if they're not able to walk, one of the things that they were able to do before is to go in and out of their house freely without having to think about it. And if they live in a home that isn't designed to be accessible for someone using a wheelchair, as most homes, frankly, aren't, then they're going to have a big problem. It's going to be very difficult for them to get in and out. And so they're going to be entitled to make modifications to their home. They you know, might need a ramp to get in yep. and out of the house. They might need a lift inside the house to get up and down the stairs. And then there are all kinds of other more minor modifications that might be required. All of these are things that the, the at-fault party is required to pay for, even if they're okay. quite expensive because they have put the person in that position and they, it is reasonable that this person be entitled to live their life as close to the way that they had been living it before. Okay, uh, yeah, I'm just going to pause here. We'll take a short break. There's a couple other questions, a couple other things I want to know are covered underneath that, but uh, we'll, we'll take a break. one 9646 would be the number. Help at the insurancelawyer.ca. We'll bounce over to another one of your emails after we come back as well. Short pause, Global News Radio, 640 Toronto. The Insurance and Injury Law Show, it's one 990 9646 or help at If you haven't checked it out, you can ask questions uh, when we're not here as well, mydisabilityquestions.com. James, you're in for Savannah today, probably for the next couple of weeks since he's uh, busy at work. We were talking about things and claims if uh, when you're in accidents that people can claim for beyond the obvious stuff, right? One of the things that I wanted to get back to in the last segment is the issue of the, the cost of these modifications. A lot of times in cases where you have a serious injury and the cost of putting the, position, the person back into the best position possible is quite expensive, you'll get arguments from the defendant um, to the effect of, oh, well, that's too expensive. They could get all of these amenities if they went to you know, a group living environment. Right. Um, that's hogwash. <laughs> no, too bad. You can't force someone to live in a group environment just because you don't want to pay for the damage you've inflicted on somebody else. So you know, I, I never entertain that kind of a position from a defendant, and it's not one the courts look kindly on either. If you've been living independently, you're entitled to continue living independently. And if it's expensive to do that, too bad. Too bad. You know, if the defendant has caused it, they got to pay for it. It's as simple as that. How about other things? Uh, you know, you mentioned other damages you can claim for. So now the person's injured. Maybe, like you said, they're, uh, they're, they're paraplegic, they're in a wheelchair. They need help doing stuff around the house, maybe help doing laundry, even bathing, yard work, and say they have a son or daughter that's doing this for them now. That Can they make a financial monetary claim as a son or daughter to help out, like a part-time wage, for instance? 
Well, I, I wouldn't go so far as to call it a part-time wage, but yes, the the you know children um, and uh, spouses and right. parents can make what's called a Family Law Act claim. And that is a derivative claim. And all that means is it's based on someone else's claim. So in order for those claims to be successful, the injured person's claim has to be successful as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, but those people, those immediate family members, are entitled to bring a claim for a couple of things. They can bring a claim for you know any loss in the relationship. It's called care, guidance, and companionship. So that's one thing they can claim for. But another thing that they can claim for is any pecuniary losses. Okay. So anything that they are out of pocket for, if they're paying for uh, medications or if they're paying for you know assistive devices, things like that. And any treatment that they're providing uh, can be recovered for um, typically at whatever the market rate would be for the services that they're providing. So if they're providing uh, housekeeping services or attendant care services, something that a personal support worker might provide, uh, maybe uh, lawn mowing, whatever it is, as long as you're not uh, looking to be uh, paid something significantly above market rate, you're entitled to be compensated for that as well, too. There are other things as well, though, that can really add up, particularly when you're talking about claims for serious injuries. Um, And here we're not talking about family members. We're talking about expenses that you might incur Mm -hmm. in the future. And what I'm really thinking about here are people who have uh, prosthetics, so amputees that require prosthetic limbs. That can get really expensive, as one can imagine. Now, we're not just talking about the, the cost of the prosthetic itself, which can be you know, five, ten, even fifteen thousand um, dollars, and you also have to keep in mind that those don't last forever. They typically have to be replaced every five or ten years. So the younger, the younger the person you're talking about, the more expensive that is right. down the road. But even then, that's not a closed loop either, because typically speaking, particularly for a younger injured person. They're going to need more than one prosthetic. They're going to need an everyday one. They're going to need one for sports use, and they're going to need a backup as well. Mm. So that can get incredibly expensive. But again, the defendant is required to make the injured person whole again. So this is something that we would always claim for in that kind of a case where someone's been seriously injured, they've lost a leg. That's something that we're always going to be looking at. Got about two minutes left, so I'll sneak in a quick email here. Jessica writes in, says, my 20, uh, 21-year-old son was in a serious car crash six months ago, diagnosed with a mild traumatic brain injury, and he has issues with focus and concentration. His school year, no uh, no shock, has been affected, and he keeps going for assessments. Our lawyer says that we have to wait for at least a year to see if he gets any better before we start a claim against the person who crashed into him. I don't understand why we are waiting. Can we do anything right now? Certainly we can do uh, the accident benefits part of it now. If this was a car crash, as uh, Jessica is explaining, that should certainly be started if it hasn't already. In terms of the legal claim, based on what Jessica is telling us about her son, uh, I would start a claim now. I wouldn't wait on it. Having said that, you know, I want to be cautious in, you know, making a blanket statement that the lawyer um, that her son has is in the wrong here. I don't know that for sure. There may be reasons why he's waiting. If uh, her son is showing significant improvement over time, um, then that's a reason why, particularly if you're talking about an injury from a car accident, that you might hold off. Having said that, when you're talking about a traumatic brain injury and somebody who is still six months out showing symptoms that, that are impacting their ability to live their life in a normal way, that's usually enough for me to get things going. 
the easiest thing to do is to give us a call. We can talk about what the options are, what's going on in your case, and see whether the decisions that are being made are appropriate in your case. And oftentimes it will be. You know, there's going to be more information that I would need to know in order to give you proper advice here. And certainly I'm not looking to have people move from a lawyer who's providing them with good service, um, particularly if it's just going to cost them more money in doing it. Um, But having said that, by all means, give us a call. Uh, You know, we're happy to provide you with a free consultation, give you a second opinion, just make sure that you understand what's going on. Make that call. Keep that number around, one 990 9646 The email is And Again, if you want to find out what the pain and suffering component of a claim should be, you'll get a, a good a good number right there, injurycalculator.ca. That is the quick and easy tool to use in that regard. Still uh, some more time to go here. We'll try to get through another email, more of your questions. It is the Insurance and Injury Law Show. It's right here, Global News Radio, 640 Toronto. One triple eight nine nine zero ninety six forty six is the number. Help any time to get a hold of Savannah or James. Help at the insurancelawyer.ca. And if you haven't checked it out yet, fightformyltd.com as well. Have a look at that website. Uh, question is, uh, once you're on long-term disability, you're already on it. Do you have to keep providing the insurance company with medical documents on and on and on? Or should you just sign a release for them to get the documents from your doctor? Is that easier or not good? Well, the, the general rule is that the insurance company is entitled to know what's going on. Um, and so in most circumstances, you know, it, it's not an issue for them to continue to be getting this information. Having said that, um, you know, there are certain cases where it shouldn't matter to them and, you know, anything that they're doing is just interfering. For example, mm-hmm. if you're talking about someone who is in a very serious car accident and suffers a severe brain injury to the point where they lose normal brain function. When you're looking at that in the context of a disability claim, you know, it, it's obvious to anyone looking at it that there's no way this person is going to be able to return to work. So there should be no reason that the insurance company, whether it's before the two years or after the two years, needs to continue to get medical right. information. There's no way this person's going back to work. And if they're asking for it on anything more than, you know, maybe every five or ten years, then they're, you know, they're really uh, being unreasonable in those circumstances. Is it worth fighting? Not always. Um, again, you have to consider what the consequences are of pushing back too hard. And if it's something that isn't really going to interfere with your life, um, then it's sometimes easier to just say, okay, we'll give you that information. And, you know, presumably that will satisfy them and allow you to continue getting your benefits and not give them an argument to cut you off. So it, it really depends. On the other hand, if you have something that is significantly less serious, they're going to want to know what's going on, and they have the right to know what's going on. If they're mm-hmm. paying your benefits, they're entitled to know, so that's fine. The number is one triple eight nine nine zero ninety six forty six, and help at the insurance lawyer That's the email address. Leslie's got an email says I've been on LTD for about a year, and my doctor has been writing letters to my insurance company in support of my disability. My insurance adjuster called me last week and told me that she disagrees with my doctor's assessment, and she thinks I need to st- start trying to go back to work. I was literally shaking when I got off the phone with her. I don't know what to do. My husband listens to your show and told me to email and call you guys. Leslie, the first thing is you have to listen to your doctor. If your doctor is telling you that you can't go back to work, you can't go back to work regardless of what your insurance company is saying. The other thing um, that I really want to impress upon you is what I talked about at the top of the show, and that is to make sure that you are getting everything that is relevant in writing. 
So if your adjuster is telling you that you have to go back to work despite what your doctor is saying, you want to make sure that if they're not saying that by email, if they're calling you and telling you that, you want to make sure that you push back and that you send an email after that phone call and you say, I'm just confirming the details of our telephone call in which you said A, B, C, D, whatever it is that they said. And again, that is going to put you in a much better position. Either the adjuster is going to change their tune, in which case problem solved, or they're not, in which case they are essentially agreeing that what you said is correct. And that puts you in a better position because if and when, and frankly it's when, they cut you off, that gives you evidence that can be used against them when you legally challenge their decision. puts you in a much better position if they're being unreasonable. Uh The other thing that you want to do is insist on the basis for their opinion. So if they're saying that, uh, you know, we think that you need to go back to work, you want to say, okay, why is that? What is the basis for that decision, for you disagreeing with what my doctor is saying? Sometimes they'll say, well, we got a medical opinion from our doctor that says that you're okay to go back to work, in which case you want to say, okay, I'd like a copy of that, which they may or may not give you. Whatever response you get from the adjuster, you want to put that in the email. So if you say, what is the basis of your opinion? And the adjuster says, oh, I'm sorry, we can't share that with you. Put that in the email. You respond back saying, you've advised me that I have to go back to work, but you will not advise me on the basis for that decision. Put that in writing, and they're going to change their tune. Let's say they advise you that it's on the basis of what their doctor, the insurance doctor, has told them, but they won't provide you with a copy of what the doctor has said. Then you put that in the email, and you say, (laughs) you've advised me that based on your own doctor's medical advice that I have to go back to work, but you've told me that you won't give me a copy of that medical opinion. So you put that to them, and that puts them in a very bad position as well. Everything that is said, you want to document it. You're going to find that when you do that, number one, it's going to put the insurance adjuster in a bad situation and make them much more cautious about how they approach your claim, which you want. And number two, when they eventually cut you off, and they're going to cut you off at some point, when they cut you off, you are going to be in a much better position when you challenge their claim. Excellent information again this week, my friend. We'll take it from there. The number to get a hold of James Savan anytime someone else in the firm is one 990 9646 Email help at And as we've echoed several times during the show, you want to find out what the pain and suffering component of a claim should be, your claim if it is, injurycalculator.ca as well. Till next time, the Insurance and Injury Law Show, Global News Radio, 640 Toronto.